Cinephile. Here's the man himself, Robert De Niro. Who can tell what a reaction will be to a film that nobody knows? The great Billy Bob Thornton, one of my favorite actors. The point of good acting is that you're supposed to be real. Cinephile. Virtuoso filmmaking by Scorsese. It's some of the best work he's done. The most famous person that follows me on Twitter, Will Arnett, <laughs> is in the house. Ego Mortensen, a tremendous story about working with Al Pacino on Carlito's Way. Cinephile. The Adnan Verk Movie Podcast. People of Earth, if you've never seen a movie by Oscar Farhadi, please, why not treat yourself? The 44-year-old Iranian director who won an Oscar for his stunning domestic thriller, A Separation, is a genius of tension, plot structure, and mysteries more layered than a season of Sherlock. That's an epic review there from Joe McGovern, the film critic for Entertainment Weekly. We'll be talking about The Salesman, which is a big-time contender for Best Foreign Film at the Oscars. Coming out, finally got around to seeing it in New Haven. Very pumped. You know, a separation, as I mentioned, was this big movie that won the best documentary. Pump, my boy stands it, has already seen it. So it, Dan gets to a foreign film occasionally here in Hartford. Rare, but it's it's there. I think I saw that one post-Oscars after it had won. Fair enough. Thanks to all those who have downloaded the podcast, who have been leaving comments on iTunes. As always, if you're so inclined, give us a rating, post a review. I love the reaction to my top ten. A lot of people seem to be happy that Deadpool made the list. I don't think anybody has seen my four, five, and six, so go check them out. Four was Born to be Blue, the uh, Chet Baker jazz biopic with Ethan Hawke. Number five was The Phenom with Giamatti and Ethan Hawke. Number six was the De Palma documentary. Check those By the way, out. I saw The Phenom. It was yeah. terrible, but that's neither here nor there. What are you there. talking about? How could you think it was a terrible movie? We don't have time to get into The Phenom. We got other more important matters to discuss, but The Phenom was not that good. You just love Giamatti. You're biased. <laughs> it wasn't one of the top ten films of the year. Atypical sports film. Character yes, study. It was a it was a bad attempt to recreate Goodwill. <laughs> Goodwill hunting. hunting. People have been asking though. I gave a top ten. How come I didn't give a bottom five? Here's the easy answer. I don't have to watch all these lousy movies that critics have to watch. So when Independence Day two comes out, I go, yeah, all right. I'm not gonna have to see that. I have no interest in seeing it anyways. And then the reviews are bad and rotten tomatoes, so I skip it. But having said that, just so I can give the worst movie of the year, it was Suicide Squad. Unequivocally, what a horrific hot mess that was. So I have my top ten, the worst movie of the year, in case you're wondering, was Suicide Squad. And no, I didn't watch Independence Day 2 or a bunch of other crappy movies. People are going to start tweeting at me. Most disappointing, I'll throw Rogue One in there. Jackie is in that mix as far as movies that I had high expectations. So they were in there as well. Also, a couple podcasts ago, we had a quiz. And the greatest question Dan Stanzik has ever come up with in his life. This includes all the quizzes he's done in his Previous incarnations, whatever he does in Mike and Mike, whatever he does in this podcast, the best ever was the Owen Don't Call Me Glaberman, although I have one quibble. I wish you had rephrased the question to say, <laughs> how would you characterize the writing style that Owen Glaberman employed in his review of Oliver Stone Snowden? Then the correct answer would have been, balls out. <laughs> <laughs> How great would that have been? All these tweets of people responding with that. But the correct answer is balls out. That is correct. You get a shirt. Speaking of quizzes and what you're all about, I got this letter. This is why our fans are the best. You can mention the writers anytime you want in the podcast, no matter what Dan says. Your subscriber, Trevor B. P.S. Trade you for a cinephile shirt. Straight from Saskatchewan. He sent me a Saskatchewan Rough Riders t-shirt. Phenomenal. So far, I get Scorsese books, and I get a Rough Riders t-shirt. So, Trevor, you are going to be getting a cinephile shirt. I will give your address on to Dan. Let's go, Riders. Get it done in the Grey Cup. 
Big news is Cinephile is hitting the road. In case you missed it last time, I'm going to be at the Oscars. There are two types of people in this world. Those who have juice, those who do not. Ben Lines has juice. When he says I'm pushing to get to the Oscars, he was not lying. I'm going to be there at the Oscars with Ben Lyons on the stage discussing all the movies. He sent me a text going, hey, you better watch all those shorts because that's what we're going to need to time, Phil. We're going to need like 40 minutes. Well, I cranked them all out. Best live short, best animated short, best documentary short. I'm in. Whatever you say, Benny. By the way, follow him. I am Ben Lyons. So the Oscars is going to be great. But the next episode is going to follow. Of course, I have recaps from the red carpet. I can't believe I'm saying that sentence out loud. The only shame, of course, Dan will not be with me. We declined the offer of hotel access for you. That was all we could get. We can we'll pay for your, we will we will pay for your flight, meaning me, and then we'll get you to L.A. And then you can hang out at the hotel when I'm getting my makeup done. Yeah, no thanks. Uh, <laughs> I'll just be watching on my couch with uh, is it Facebook Live or is Oscars.com? We, you need to get more promotion for what you're going sure. to be doing and where people can watch. Oscar.com, the entire telecast. For the record, it's Oscar, not yes. Oscars. Well, what is that about? Great point, because the show I'm hosting, it's called the Oscars All Access, but it's on OscarSingular.com. Did someone beat him to the punch with that domain name? I, I'm with you because the first thing I would think is, like, oh, Virk's going to be, oh, Oscars.com. Wait, doesn't come up here. It's just Oscars the Grouch and a bunch of other weird stuff. Okay, back to Kimmel. But yes, it's Oscar.com. Second screen experience. Go ahead. Put it on your uh, your iPhone, your tablet. So Cinephile is going to be at the Oscars. Cinephile also going to Lemoyne College, among other things. I'll be meeting Professor Julie Grossman in her film noir class. Can't wait to meet Professor Grossman. I wish I could be a professor one day. I don't know. If, I, if we do cinephile for like 25 years, would that entail a professorship, I think? You could probably do it now, really. Like once you, you hosted on stage at the Oscars discussing movies, why not? Yeah, they're going to refer to me there as the media scholar in residence, which sounds rather highfalutin. Is that going to be the top line of your resume going forward? <laughs> Forget about hosting baseball tonight, Mike and Mike. Right. That's it. Media scholar in residence. Uh, so I look forward to the the film noir class and uh, – giving some keynote addresses. The real big news, though, Dan is from Syracuse. So Kathy Leo Grant has organized a dinner with me and your family. How How is this coming together here? I believe she is dropping you off at a restaurant, Dinosaur Barbecue, famous in Syracuse, and you will be meeting my parents and at least my brother Jim, and I don't know about Pat and Mike. We've got to get Pat and Mike involved. Yeah. If, Pat mean, is the most like you. So probably. Stand a reason yeah, I get along well. doesn't like a lot of people, you know, strong opinions. Right. So Pat yeah. and I would get along well. Yes. Mike is critical. I don't know about I mean, he's a lawyer. I don't know how critical he is. A little more reserved, a little more dignified. Similar outlook, though, world outlook. With you, yes, definitely, yeah. definitely. Yeah. You guys will get along politically, which, you know, the rest of my family, I'm not sure how you'll jive with. Have you told them? Just let's let's stay away from politics. I haven't too, yet, but I'm going yeah, to. Too like, divisive Mom, an issue Dad, right now. like, let's, let's not go there. <laughs> I think that, like, the reason I think it's important you're giving your parents heads up, I actually don't think I'm a very good conversationalist. And Come give, on. You no, talk for a living. I'll give you an example. The great Brendino, the best editor I've ever worked with, Brendan Lynch, I used to work with at The Score basketball phenomenal you'd love him as an nba guy he once described all honor types as bipolar now obviously that's a serious medical condition but his point was that people are bipolar like you're on the air you guys expend so much energy and you're so bright and colorful immediately when the light goes off you're a different person it's why crusty the clown is based on david letterman like he's like i hate myself smoke and drink etc so the compliment he gave me he goes of the on-air guys you're actually the least like that you are actually a lot what you appear to be on TV. And I – would you agree with that, first of all? 
Yeah, you're very affable. But the downside, I think, as a conversationalist, like I'm going to meet Mr. and Mrs. Stanzik, I really only know two things, which you know well, sports and movies. I can't really go out of that box. That's my whole frame of reference. I don't know what we're going to talk about. It better be some great barbecue. Oh, it's the food's going to be the best part. <laughs> I can assure you of that right now, that the conversation might dwindle. You also know me. you got three topics right there. It's just a lot of questions about you. Tell me yeah. about Dan. Where was Dan they growing up? might have what? questions for you. <laughs> What's it like being a Muslim? <laughs> Then we just segue to the travel bit. No, Dan said no politics. Oh, God. Oh, God. And the thing is, Jimmy, Jimmy's a big fan of Cinephile, but, he oh, yeah. himself, but he's kind of reserved. He likes yeah. obscure movies and music. Correct. So I'm going to have to talk with the Grammys. Like, hey, what do you think of Beyonce in that chair? Yeah. Well, I wouldn't go about Beyonce. <laughs> Adele. But, you know, yeah, How about yeah, the Adele? You know. She screwed up. She went back and started again. A little with more on the rock side. But yeah, you'll be okay. fine. Um, Bee Gees, maybe. <laughs> maybe mom and dad. Cinephile coming to Lemoyne. We'll have stories, obviously, on the next podcast, what it was like hanging out with Dan's family. But I love Siskel and Ebert growing up, and one of the best things that Siskel and Ebert would do is they'd do if we pick the winner. So going into the Oscars, hey, we know who's going to win, and if you want to know my picks, go to goldderby.com under experts picks. You'll see all my selections there. But let's do it. Me and Dan are going to do if we pick the winners to try to go through who we think should win and who actually will win. Once again, goldderby.com, experts, you'll see my picks for everything. Unfortunately, Dan does not have such an outlet, but we'll go through each one. So You can find my picks, uh, they're hotel access. <laughs> you can go to Cinephile, ESPN, C-I-N-E-P-H-I-L-E, ESPN. Dan will post them there. You want to go smallest to biggest, or you want to go the big daddy first? Up to you. All right, so best picture first. Who do you got? Who would you like to see win? A quick question. Do they have to be what has been nominated? Because that's yeah, how I did it. Exactly. Because that's the trick. Okay. Of course, I would give silence everything. So I, oh, yeah. good. I'm, I'm glad we're doing it this way then. Uh, I'd go Manchester by the Sea. You know me. I like measuring movies by whether or not they make me think. And Manchester by the Sea did that probably more than any other movie outside of Arrival this year. Everyone deals with grief, loss in kind of a different way. And things get a little more complicated when culpability and blame kind of comes to the equation. Mm. And no one wants to be remembered about the worst moment of their life, but sometimes it happens. So for me, that film kind of raises questions like, I don't know, does time actually heal all wounds? Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, there's there's a lot of rhythm and like big questions there. Like Kenny Lonergan is not just taking small issues. Those are big questions with regards to grief and tragedy and how you deal with them. And as I said in my original review, it's the funniest movie ever about grief, which uh, one critic had said, and I thought it was bang on as well. There's there's a lot going on there. That would also be my pick if I had a vote for best picture of the year. La La Land, of course, is going to win. Best director, what do you got? I'm going with Chazelle. Nice. Um, and I think he's worthy of it. He's young, as we know. He's 32. And I would say it this way. The opening scene is like the best music video you've seen all year. Right. And the last 20 minutes is like its own mini movie in itself, and outside of that, there's a great movie mixed in between. So I think he's very worthy of the win. I think he's also the biggest lock of any of the awards to win. No, I'm with you. I think, Chazelle, you're right. Just to have the chutzpah, the ambition to actually tackle this topic, like nobody makes great musicals anymore. It's a really tough thing to do. And like you said, to only be 32 years old and to pull it off, not only the opening, but I love the final 20 minutes, that kind of alternative ending. I know we're talking about alternative facts a lot these days, but alternative ending. You know, this is what could have happened. This is what actually did happen. It's romantic. It's sweet. Like, he's juggling a lot of different emotions there. I agree. It's ultimately a love letter to Tinseltown. I would go with Chazelle because Lonergan, I love Manchester by the Sea, but I think screenplay is what I think of. Him. I think the writing, the acting is what carries that film. I don't think of the directing, but you're right. Uh, Chazelle's going to win. Best actor. 
I think this one, obviously, it comes down to Casey Affleck or Denzel. Denzel's my guy. Yeah. And his character, you know, fiery, a lot of great dialogue. <laughs> but I'm going Casey Affleck, and his performance was, you know, a masterclass in understatement, dealing with grief, all you know, languishing through life. Just unbelievable. You can kind of feel that there's something, some weight he's carrying the entire movie, and eventually it reveals itself. It's just unbelievable. The best performance, I think, of anyone all year. 100%. I would like to see Casey win for all the reasons you listed. I'd like to focus on his actual work rather than people are focusing on the sexual harassment suit. Constance Wu, the actress from Fresh Off the Boat, penned a very powerful letter talking about why you can't support this guy. You can't give him an Oscar just because he, he you know, paid some money and, and settled out of court over these sexual harassment uh, allegations in the past. And apparently what he did do or didn't do, I mean, that's obviously a gray area. But it's it's there. It's lingering. I think people are definitely talking about it. But I do love just his performance. He he is equated to like um, a stove pop, you know. And the, you're trying to the pot is trying to, to stay under, but he can't. Like he's just at slow boil the entire time. His performance is all about simmering, and he's trying to keep those emotions at bay. And yet, it's just so tough to do. But he does it underneath that mask of grief, and it, he's never been better. Dan has been all in on this guy since Gone Baby Gone, so that's your boy. But I think Denzel's going to win. I, I think after he won the SAG award, I'm going to say, you know, the Academy can listen. Three Academy Awards for one of the best actors of all time. Passion Project, best movie he's done in a decade and a half. Casey doesn't have his resume, and Casey's sexual harassment thing's going on here. You know what? Screw him. Let's go with Denzel. I think Denzel's going to win. And I, and I would not have thought that prior to the SAG Awards, but I'd like to see Casey win. Supporting actor. I think Mahershala Ali is a lock to win. I think he's going to win. If it was up to me and that's what we're doing, I'd go Jeff Bridges who was outstanding, plays a retired Texas Ranger, or soon-to-be-retired Texas Ranger, chasing bank robbers, and he just does it with this this dignified kind of way where he's this, like, I know what I'm doing, this old-school conservative, but very likable. And there's a great scene at the end of the movie with him and Chris Pine. Awesome. I don't want to give anything away, but it's just, he was outstanding. He's my favorite. Mahershala Ali just wasn't in enough of Moonlight. Yeah, he's only in, spoiler alert, he's not, he's only in a third of the movie, which is why he's a supporting actor. He's phenomenal, and he's going to win, and I'm thrilled for Hersh. I cannot wait to see him. And congratulate him after he wins. But I'm with you. I would vote for Jeff Bridges for Hell or High Water. That movie sneaks up on you. It came out in late August, not the time where all the Academy Award movies are normally coming out. But he's phenomenal. The, the fact that Jeff Bridges is from California, like he's like the surfer dude. And yet he plays these cowboys like dead on. Like you, you'd think he's right from the ground from West Texas with that Sam Elliott mustache and that laconic drawl and that manner about him. And the neat trick of his performance is like he's always needling his Native American buddy. He seems like this old racist, like you said, conservative. And yet by the end of the film, you see the tenderness within him and the fact that he does have nobility and the dignity you mentioned. That last final scene is great. I mean, that's a hell of an ending, the, the way him and Chris Pine verbally joust back and forth with each other. I would also go with Bridges. Supporting actress. Last one we'll do. Well, let's go with actual actress first. Oh, Emma sorry. Stone. We the best actress. Yeah. yeah, you went men, then women. I'm oh, sorry. Yeah, sorry, sorry. So best actress, best actress. We'll do Emma Stone. She's going to win. I would vote for her. Wow. In the interest of full disclosure, she's yeah. the only one I have seen of the five nominated. Yeah. So obviously, I'm going to have to pick her. You've been saying for the longest time <laughs> she's, the, she's the heart of the film, and she is okay. sweet, charming, funny, right? Um, talented. Obviously, on screen chemistry with Gosling. She's right. the one for me. Yeah, thank God it's not going to be Natalie Portman for Jackie. All, all the experts are saying Emma Stone right now on Gold Derby. So that's what I'm hoping. Uh, so Emma is going to win. 
And I think I would vote for as well. Although, you know, I have a soft spot for Meryl Streep and Florence Foster Jenkins. You're just impressed that she could sing bad opera. I'm telling you, you got to see how, how exquisitely she does it. Because apparently she's actually a really good singer. So imagine if you're a really good singer, but then you got to sing really terribly. And, by the way, if Meryl wins, if you thought that Golden Globe speech was powerful, do you know what she's going to say at the Academy Awards? She might just paint herself orange. Like, she'll just, like Agent Orange, that's nothing compared to what Meryl's going to do. Like, oh, my God, that... The, the amount of political speeches, like, it, it's already going to be heavy. Like, if you're anti-liberal and anti you're going to despise this year's Oscars. Is every speech, they're going to be going all in at the president. But if Merrill wins, it'd be phenomenal. But, yes, I would uh, I'd vote for Emma. Heart of the film, she's sweet, she's charming, she's funny, she's delightful, she's romantic, uh, she's melancholy. Like, she has to play that whole range of emotions. And I, I think it's a cliche. Again, you're playing the actress who's playing a struggling actress. But I thought she actually got to the essence of it and did it with authenticity. She's going to win. I'd like to see her win. Although if Meryl wins, get ready for a hell of a speech. And supporting actress, lastly. You want range of emotions. Watch Viola <laughs> Davis in Fences. She should win. She's going to win. Right. She was incredible. You mention all the time the snot, the phlegm yeah, she gets phlegm going when she's got a few words. explosive scenes in there oh. with Denzel. I actually what think, about me? Yeah, I think she's kind of, a, in the film, her character is kind of a modern woman but trapped in the wrong time frame. Like, she kind of runs the household, but she's not the provider. Right. And if it was a different time spoiler alert yeah, yeah, yeah. i hate giving these things away but like she would have left but right. instead she stays and she you know you know they always say like hell hath no fury like a woman scorned oh viola davis scorned a little bit in this one yeah she's gonna win i'd like to see her win for all the reasons you mentioned how about the fact like the the, the brazenness now that we're giving spoilers here the brazenness of denzel after the admission yeah I, i'm gonna keep saying it like what oh my god like this guy's unbelievable like, that's part of the greatness of Denzel's performance is that, like, initially, like I said, I thought he was sympathetic. He's one of these hardworking guys, just busting his butt, trying to do his thing, wants a little booze, a little baseball. But, like, he, he ends up revealing himself to be a monster. Like, he's actually a horrible person. And, like, in that scene, epitomizes it. It's like, hey, I've done this, Rose, and guess what? I'm going to keep doing it. Like, man, this guy's a scoundrel. That kind of goes to sh- He had so much to work with with that character, oh. though. So you look at him, and then you look at Casey Affleck. It's like right. polar opposites. Casey Affleck, you get nothing. You're like, hey, you're grief-stricken. Right. Do with it what Inward you will. repression the whole time. And Denzel's got all this great... I'm yeah. staying. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Uh, Fences, by the way, is not a comedy. Dan and I just have a warped sense of humor. For those wondering, like, man, this sounds like a real laugh riot. No, not exactly. Really intense drama about black life in the 50s and 60s. But it is actually really well captured. Uh, So that's how we see it. If these would win, if we did the Oscars, uh, and how it's actually going to play out. Once again, goldderby.com. You can check all those out. It's going to be a ton of fun. I better make sure I get my battery with me. Like, imagine Oscar night. I'm trying to tweet out my picks, and then all of a sudden... (gasps) I could have a selfie with Meryl, like I'm on the stage. Are you gonna have? Are you gonna be live tweeting too, or are you just gonna be so wrapped up in the? I would think turn the phone off, focus on the job, but I can't. I'll be multitasking. I'm gonna get caught. No way, you won't be tweeting. Ben's gonna be like, you're gonna get fired. Like, what are you doing? Like, we're on the air, Oscar.com, and you're sitting here on your phone, cinephile retweet. What are you doing? <laughs> Nocturnal Animals, uh, one of the movies I'll be reviewing this week. I would love. To give it to Michael Shannon, by the way, for supporting actor, because he's the best part of Nocturnal Animals, a film that I actually found disappointing. I thought going into it, I would love this film. Tom Ford's previous work, of course, you know him uh, from the fashion world, always has a beautiful eye. I thought at the very least this film would look gorgeous, and it does. Uh, but the story was never compelling to me. It features, for the most part, very unlikable characters and no one that I could really root behind. It also has a parallel narrative that I did not really care for. It is a... a 
has described a haunting romantic thriller showing the balance between love and cruelty and revenge and redemption. And ostensibly, it's about Amy Adams playing this woman and her husband, Army Hammer. He's got to go away on business. You can kind of read between the lines and see that, okay, he doesn't seem like very sa- – she doesn't seem very satisfied in this marriage. And then all of a sudden, it cuts to Jake Gyllenhaal driving a car in the middle of the night, and it's him and his wife and his daughter. And you're going, okay, is this like some other story that maybe he's going to visit Amy Adams or something like that? And then he gets accosted by a bunch of rednecks. And one of the guys is fabulous, Aaron Taylor Johnson, who was actually nominated for a Golden Globe and won the Golden Globe. So how rare is this? You win the Golden Globe Award for Best Supporting Actor, then you're not even nominated for Best Supporting Actor for the Oscars. So yet another example for those that are seeking correlations with the Golden Globes and the Oscars doesn't exist. Oftentimes it's a crapshoot. Anyways, he plays Ray Marcus. They start terrorizing Gyllenhaal, his wife, his daughter, etc. It's it's very bold and bleak the way it's done because they really seem like these revolting characters and that really get under your skin. But then it all of a sudden you flash, you go, oh, and it's back to Amy Adams and she slams a book shut. And you go, oh, she's reading a script called Nocturnal Animals. So it's actually just a false narrative. And then it goes to her talking to Jake Gyllenhaal. So now you're really confused. Going, all right, what's going on here? And what it is is Gyllenhaal and Amy Adams were previously married. He's now written a book and he's sent the book to her, which she is now reading years after they've been divorced. So it's an interesting way of trying to have, like I said, these parallel narratives, uh, one that is true and one that is false. And yet the false narrative is essentially, my take was it was Gyllenhaal's um, summation of his marriage to Amy Adams. And essentially he's trying to get back at her a little bit because as she's reading it more and more, and they keep cutting back between her reaction to absorbing the material and then the actual material of the book. It's a very violent, emotional thriller. And the fact that he sent it to her, Amy Adams is now thinking, all right, is, this, is he trying to send a message to me? Is this about me, is, et cetera? So it's, at times I thought the self-indulgence just kind of bordered on self-parody. I mean, I, I'm all for different stories, but it seemed like it was trying way too hard to be like a, a David Lynch-type film. Like I, I kept thinking, imagine if David Lynch was directing this, like a Lost Highway-type movie or Mulholland Drive, you know, creepy, suspenseful, eerie. He could do this as well as anybody. Ford, I thought it was a mixed bag. Having said that, Aaron Taylor Johnson, very good. And Michael Shannon, outstanding as Bobby Andes. He plays the sheriff, so he's in the false narrative. He's in what the, the book is about. So Hall, after whatever happens with his wife and his daughter, uh, Shannon ends up being the cop who's investigating. And he plays this lawman who's a chain smoker who's actually battling lung cancer. And he, he's just hell-bent on revenge. Like it, It's interesting that him and Bridges are both nominated. They're both playing sheriffs, but it, it could be more different. Like Bridges is this older, conservative... Uh, kind of a relic of the past, like Hell or High Water feels like either a modern noir or almost like a Western. Whereas um, Shannon isn't a corrupt cop, like he's actually a, a correct lawman, but he's just much like in the way Bridges is world weary. Whereas Bridges is kind of just contemplative and accepting of this is the way the world is. Shannon is more of the type that he's more of an anarchist and that he's like, all right, I've seen enough crap here being a sheriff. I'd like to see some action done. I want to be more decisive. Let's throw the brick through the wall and find out who the bad guys are. So it's interesting that there's two law enforcement nominees here going head to head and both play them really well. Like I said, me and Dan would both love to see Bridges win, but Shannon is fantastic. I mean, he's, he's my favorite creep slash weirdo right now working in, in movies. And I'm happy to see you got a second Oscar nomination for this because it, it is a well-acted movie and it looks good, but I just thought the narrative let me down. And especially the ending, I thought, was a big-time letdown. The last 10 minutes, 
I was groaning. So nocturnal animals, I'm only giving two maple leaves, which is even a surprise to me. I thought it was average. I thought it would be a lot better than it was. Having said that, the Batman Lego movie matched my expectations. All five works. Check this one out. My five-year-old, Dean, no bigger Batman fan than him. Batman shirt, Batman boots, Batman pants, Batman mask. I said, we can leave the mask at home. We don't want to freak too many people out. Uh, but, of course, he was all in. So if you have a five-year-old, if you have an eight-year-old, if you have a baby, all three were all in from, from the Virg perspective. And the parents were all enjoyed it really well as well. Will Arnett, I wouldn't go so far as to say he's the best Batman of all time because then Dan will accuse me of Canadian bias. But he's awesome. And, we, of course, we had Will. Will was our first ever guest here on Cinephile. He's just got a great voice. Like he's, There's a reason why, before his acting career really took off, and he became a star with Arrested Development. He did a lot of voiceover work and was able to make a living with it. Guys that have a great voice and can use it like Will, it's amazing. He's just got that gravelly voice like, I want I want evil at all times. My heart is dark. And if you hear Will Arnett talk in real life, like he's not, he does not sound like that. It obviously has to put on the voice. Like he was on Kimmel last week and he was doing it. It was hilarious. He's like the coolest guy now on his block because he played Batman. His kids revere him. Uh, but much like the original Lego movie was was fun and goofy and, again, a lot of the same thing, but I think it, it takes the movie even further. I mean, listen, from the Lego movie, Batman was the best part of the movie. So naturally, you make a spinoff, and now Batman is a star, and you include Robin and the Joker and, and all the rest of it, and you're going to have a hit. So if you like Lego movie, you love the Batman Lego movie, dazzling animation. It's fun. It's quick, well-edited. It's only about an hour and a half, and really funny. Jokes, you, you expect jokes from, like, the Naked Gun or the, the Mad TV shows. I mean, it was really... Silly and goofy, but again, as any of these kids' movies do, it has to have a lot of heart. So I encourage all of you to check out Batman Lego movie. Huge hit at the box office. Made like $55 million, so couldn't be happier for Will, who's a friend of the podcast. I give it three and a half Maple Leafs. On a much more serious note, finally saw The Salesman, which is that latest film from the Iranian director, Oscar Farhadi. So if you've seen A Separation, you know his style of filmmaking, which is adult themes, but done in a very serious manner and in a very much the manner of a thriller. I remember wondering when, you know, originally a separation was getting so much love. I said, I don't understand what this movie, like, why are people loving it so much? Apparently it's just about a man and a woman and somebody comes. And I'm like, yeah, they go, it's, it's a domestic drama, but it unfolds like a thriller. I'm like, okay. And then when you see it, you go, oh, I get it. Like it, it is totally gripping and white knuckling the whole time. And yet it deals with very adult themes of love and betrayal, et cetera. So a salesman, what this movie's about, this begins in an apartment building. And then there's, Man and a woman, they're married theater actors, and they're co-starring in an Iranian production of Death of a Salesman. So they move to a new place where the previous occupant hasn't cleared out all of her belongings. And one night while she's home alone, his wife, who's taking a shower, thinks that he, her husband's downstairs. She goes and unlocks the door she hears the beep. And then she's attacked by an intruder. The next day, the husband you know, finds out what's happening. Away we go. So a couple things here. One, because of the Iranian government over the films, they can't depict the things that American filmmakers can do. So... I don't know how much of this is for Hadi that he himself wouldn't show it, but you don't see any of the assault, which is interesting. So the, the movie completely, you know, hooks you on this assault that takes place that you don't see any of it. Now, some filmmakers would just choose not to show it anyways. It's, I don't want to be gratuitous when it comes to the violence, et cetera. You can imagine it's a very artistic impulse. I don't know if that's for Hadi's impulse or just the fact he can't do it because the Iranian government is very uh, strict when it comes to regulations of the film. Regardless, it doesn't matter because his, his storytelling is so good. You can only imagine what happened to this woman, what this man did. And now the husband has to embark um, on this story of revenge and becomes a, a vigilante as such. 
And again, it shows for Hottie's skills. If if you heard the the plot, you'd say, well, that sounds like uh, Dirty Harry or something, like a Charles Bronson movie. But he does it in a very mature, complex manner. It's almost as if the husband's playing detective but looking for clues. And while he's trying to find out who abducted his wife or who, uh, sorry, assaulted his wife, he's also looking at their relationship and the cracks within their relationship and the dramatic tension that's there as well. And, you know, as the story goes along, it's a very kind of lucid, easy-to-follow style um, he's a filmmaker that I think gives equal time to both men and women. Uh, he's not patriarchal at all in that respect. And the, the real hook of it, I don't want to spoil any of the plot, because the last, it's a little slow in the middle, which is why I'm giving it three and a half Maple Leafs. It starts at excellent, drags a bit in the middle, but the final 40 minutes is as suspenseful and gripping as any blockbuster you'll see at the multiplex, even though this is just a small-budget Iranian film. But at the end, there's this old man with a weak heart who becomes a critical character. And I'm like, oh! That's why they're doing Death of a Salesman. Like, now it all makes sense. I'm like, why is he showing these scenes of this man and woman playing Death of a Salesman in Iran? Like, there has to be some sort of symbolism here. And by the end of the movie, I'm like, that is masterful, how he connected that landmark play, my second favorite play of all time behind Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, an absolute beacon of American theater. And then he uses it for modern-day life in Iran to tell the story of this man and woman. It is spectacular. And clearly the grift of a great filmmaker and a real dramatist. And as of now, Tony Erdman is the favorite to win foreign film, but I hope a sep- uh, the salesman, I always call it a separation. I hope the salesman uh, wins because right now it's number two. I'm going to try to catch Tony Erdman at some point, but the salesman, Dan, I know you, it's, you have to drive to New Haven to go see it, so you'll probably have to wait till DVD, but I'll try to get you a screener. Please do. I'm all in. It kind of reminded you, you said you don't see the crime. It's almost like no country for old men. Hmm. Three-fourths of that movie is... You're waiting, he's chasing him, and all of a sudden, he's dead, and you don't see the crime. Right. Which I didn't like. Yeah. That was a big disappointment for me in that movie, but you're telling me in this movie, I don't have to worry about it. Yeah, I, I would be on. In no country, you kind of, because you, you need it when it, the whole story builds around it. But this happened, I think, so early in the story that you go, okay, the assault really isn't the point. It's more about the relationship. And apparently, after. my opinion didn't matter because it's still one best picture. <laughs> Where do you rank No Country, Coen Brothers' all-time films? I think uh, you might hate me for this, and the podcast it's might no end right now. It's no it might end right now. I think the Coen Brothers are overrated. Oh, my goodness. All right, it's over. We had a good run, folks. <laughs> Next podcast, we'll dive deep in the Coen Brothers. I'll say this. When they're great, nobody better. But when they're bad, they really miss the mark. To your point, Hail Caesar is also one of the biggest disappointments of the year. Did you watch Hail Caesar? No. Terrible. Dan Dockage, one of our friends here, he he had t- tweeted me and he goes, seriously, how bad is this movie? Before I'd seen it, I go, are you kidding? Coen Brothers, Clooney, Jonah Hill, Charlotte Johansson, it's going to be awesome. Sending up old Hollywood. He goes, I have not seen a worse movie in a long time. So I went and saw it. I actually fell asleep at one point. There's only one. It's on HBO right now if you have HBO. So just DVR it and watch one scene. It's about 23 minutes in. Ray Fiennes is talking to Alden Ehrenreich, who's playing this actor who's like this real cowpoke. And Ray Fiennes is this very sophisticated director and he's trying to give him direction just watch that one five minute scene which is great the rest of the movie is a complete waste of time the last movie i'll discuss here before we'll get to some directors this is the director's edition of cinephile barry jenkins the director of moonlight coming up and garth davis of the film lion nominated for best picture you'll want to hear what both those guys have to say about their films life animated which is owes a lot to disney because it's about an autistic man owen suskin who early on was living conventional, fun, happy life, and then all of a sudden shut down. And his parents are telling the story of, of the fact that their son is just gone now. Like he's not the person he once was. He's not communicating. And it's absolutely heartbreaking, as you can imagine, for any parents. 
You're living a wonderful, idyllic childhood, and all of a sudden your child just shuts down. No emotions, not reacting, et cetera. Um, so they go to the doctor, et cetera. He's diagnosed with autism. Now they have to understand how to go through these challenges, et cetera. And they, they go through this for a number of years, and they're trying to work with him and try to you know kind of get through to him. And then one day, and the documentary is amazing. You should see it just for this part. It's called Life Animated, just for the seed, where the dad comes in. All his son does own is watch Disney movies. <clears throat> the dad comes in. And he's talking like Gilbert Gottfried. I wish I could do a Gilbert Gottfried impression because he's so great. But Gilbert Gottfried plays uh, Iago, I believe, in Aladdin, plays the parrot. And he's like, why, why would you do that? And he did the voice and, like, he had the, the parrot. And all of a sudden his son spoke. And he was like, oh, my God. Like, I have not heard him speak in years. And he said he had to collect himself. He's like, you know, the tears are coming. Like, I'm about to explode. And I was like, no, no, stay in character. Stay in the voice. Stay in the voice. It's because I gathered myself with all I could. I've got the parrot on my hand. I go up and I go, Mao, why do you think about this? And and he keeps doing the voice. And now his son is, is again, talking to him with dialogue from the movie, from Aladdin. So now he has to remember, like, muscle memory. Like, okay, what's the next line the character would say? And they're going back and forth talking. And the next day he gets another Disney character. And again, like a sock puppet, he starts talking like him. And again, his son starts responding. He goes, oh, my God, we can talk to him through Disney movies. This is a breakthrough. And they go to the doctor and they say, all right. Hold on a second. This is interesting and notable, but sometimes this happens with, with kids who have autism. You feel like you have a breakthrough, but then they go back to being themselves and being shut in. But thankfully, in the case of Owen, that was the entryway, Disney movies. So him and his dad and his mom are watching like dozens of Disney movies, and that's the way they can get him to talk. Beauty and the Beast, and they go through all of them. Pocahontas, you name it. Like the movie starts showing clips of all of them, and Owen himself is watching them, and he's repeating the words, repeating the lines. And it's like you have to then decipher – the, the words that he's using are describing his emotions. So rather than a normal child uh, you know, saying, you know, I'm hungry or whatever it is, he's using a character who would say that the movie, you just have to figure it out. Okay, he's saying this because he means this, et cetera. So it's, it's amazing that Disney was able to do this, was able to help this guy. And, and I can see why people love the movie because anybody who loves motion pictures finds it as a way of escapism. But instead of escapism, this kid found Disney movies his way to reality. Because of these movies, he was able to attach himself to his parents again to live uh, as normal life as he could. So the movie now, he's an adult, he's going to college. The movie focuses on that. But all the backstory behind it is fascinating to how he's gotten to this life. So check out Life Animated, uh, the story of an autistic boy, Owen Susskin, who who found his way through Disney movies. I did think of uh, an essay that I read back in college in sociology. Because, you know, in college, they just have to – we have to, like – fight through everything that's positive in life. So I remember reading an essay that it just crushed Disney movies and it said how anybody who loved them, like they, they point through all the uh, stereotypes. So Aladdin, you know, negative Arab stereotypes, um, uh, Little Mermaid, you know, negative female stereotypes. And like each Walt Disney himself, anti-Semitism, et cetera. So I did have that feeling while watching the movie. I'm like, all right, if this kid is only learning about life through Disney movies, would he not start to believe life through the eyes of Disney? And if you believe, according to some sociologists, that Disney is not giving you the way the world should be portrayed, would that have an impact on him? But clearly, this movie is not going to focus on that minor quibble. But, Dan, that's something I think you – because you and I share that kind of cynicism. That you go, All right, this is really sweet and really nice, but is he going to start to think the world is through Disney? And, in fact, the best scene of the documentary – this is classic. His brother's talking to him because he has a girlfriend. We're like, oh, okay. And his brother goes, how am I going to talk to him about sex? He goes, he goes, do I have to get, like, Disney porn? He goes, seriously. How? He literally says it. He goes, how am I going to explain to my brother, like, this is how things happen here? Fascinating development. All I'm going to say 
is, do you know who signs our checks? Yeah, exactly. We're not going to be critical. We're very positive of okay. what they do. <laughs> I'm just throwing out an alternative theory. That's all. But ultimately, it is definitely a love letter to movies, to Disney, uh, for allowing this guy to go through his life. So heartwarming story. I'll give it three Maple Leafs for Life Animated, a very sweet movie. It's nominated for Best Documentary. Well, let's be honest, it's got no chance of winning because of O.J. Made in America, the most decorated documentary of the year, winning over 45 awards, including the Directors Guild of America, the Producers Guild of America, and four Critics' Choice Documentary Awards for Best Documentary Feature. Critics have declared it a triumph, a landmark achievement, the number one documentary of the year, Academy Award nominee, O.J. Made in America, available in its entirety on the ESPN app and on Watch ESPN. Check it out. It is as extraordinary as everybody says. Before it came out, Dan Lebitard said, this is the best thing ESPN's ever done. My immediate impulse was to say, bah, hyperbole. I don't know if it's the best thing we've ever done, but it's outstanding, and you should check it out. Now time for Barry Jenkins, director of Moonlight. And joining us now in the director edition of Cinephile, Barry Jenkins, the director of Moonlight. Barry, we'll get into some sports in just a second. You know, there's FSU fans who are clamoring and, and listening into this podcast, including my buddy Danny Cannell. But congratulations on a wonderful achievement. Uh, your film really is an example of indie movie making, to me, reminding me of from the 90s, where you take a, a character-driven story, and I'm sure you didn't have much of a budget, and it just happens to hit, and all of a sudden... Uh, audiences have responded. You received critical appraisal, and obviously now this bevy of Oscar nominations. At what point, either during the filmmaking process or once it started being screened by audiences, did you realize you had something special? You know, it wasn't during uh, during the process because we made the movie in 25 days. It was a very sort of like uh, almost run and gun experience. We were just working constantly to keep everything together. So the process was just very much. Um, very much work, but, you know, when we were at the uh, Toronto and Telluride film festivals, you know, I started to realize very quickly that something was happening where people were people were watching the movie, they were seeing our characters for sure, but they were also seeing themselves on screen somehow. And that's when I realized, okay, something is about to happen. I don't know what, but I guess I should be here for it. <laughs> and certainly those film festivals are major ones, and you're right, once it started to hit in Toronto, you knew you had something special how about the fact, listen, this is only your second film. I mean, I'm 38, you're 37. We're, in, the, in the grand scheme of things, we're relatively young guys. And for you to be Oscar nominated, have a Best Picture nomination so relatively early in the feature film game, what's that like? Uh, it, it's surreal, man. You know, this is, uh, I mean, I've, I've had a very privileged experience with this film because I have friends who've made amazing work that nobody sees unless people talk about. So, so I realized that, you know, there's just been this fortunate sequence of events that, that have led to this point. Um, you know, I, I just try to stay grounded and stay humble, man, because as amazed as, as I am that this has happened, as, as thankful as I am, I do realize how easily it could not have happened. So, you know, I'm, I'm just thankful and happy for all the other folks who contributed to the movie that they're getting recognition as well. Oh, man, Mahershala Ali, we've had on Cinephile a couple months back. He's going to win the Best Supporting Actor Academy Award. He's been a wonderful actor for years now, and your film really is a, is a great showcase for him because he has such dignity he has such presence in the character of one what was it like working with my man hirsch man it was amazing working with him by the way i just knocked on wood man i just have to every time somebody says something like that i gotta <laughs> knock on some wood um Gonna happen. No, it was it was dope working with him man he's like the the godfather of the movie in a certain way because he was also doing luke cage at the same time so you know he'd be in new york for four or five days working he'd take a flight down overnight come and work for us two days, go back to New York. And so you know, he was the one actor who was there over the longest uh, stretch of the, of the script. 
uh, or the shoe, he just kept coming back and forth. So I feel like his hands are kind of all over the piece. And he was just amazingly graceful and kind because other than the one scene with Naomi Harris, all of his work is with non-actors or people who are acting for the first time. And it was wonderful to see him embrace that, you know, and go to these new places. And I said to Marshall Barry, I said, you know, but people love to categorize. And early on, Moonlight was being hyped as the gay black film. And I said, you know, whereas certainly themes of sexuality and race are important. I, I thought it was a story of self-discovery and self-actualization. And granted, the stories about gay black men are, of course, historically underrepresented in Hollywood. But to me, what made the movie was the fact it was so universal. Have you, you, did you feel like you had to impart that message to people, or did they recognize that once they saw the film? You know, I think people recognize that once they saw the film. Case in point, you know, uh, last week I did this international tour releasing the movie in all these different countries, and I was in Berlin, and this guy stood up to ask a question. He was like, you know, I know you say you made this movie about Miami and for Miami, but, you know, when I was watching that film, I didn't see Miami. I saw the small rural town I grew up on the outskirts, you know, in the outer reaches of Germany. You know, he he, he basically, he took the specificity of our world and applied the specificity of his world. I think that's what's happening. I think that's why the movie is being, being held as being universal, you know. People find a way to see themselves and their own lives in these characters. A really curious decision you made, Barry. I was looking at my uh, Entertainment Weekly Oscar preview. It said the three different actors that play Chiron, you did not have them interact, which I found fascinating. I would have thought they're trying to mimic each other in body and gestures and mannerisms and such. Why did you uh, keep them separate? You know, part of it was, uh, you know, I, I love that. I would love to frame myself as this brilliant guy making all these <laughs> crazy decisions, but. You know, we just couldn't afford to have any rehearsal, you know. And I think at some point you lean into those things and use them to your benefit. You know, the movie's about how the world is reshaping uh, this kid. You know, every time we meet him again at a new chapter, he's the same character, but he's made himself into a different person. And as you say, I didn't want them to mimic one another and try and carry these things from story to story. You know, the world weighs differently on Chiron's shoulders in Chapter 2 than they do in Chapter 3. In Chapter 3, he's literally refitted his shoulders with many more muscles so he can carry that weight. And I thought the best way to communicate that to the audience was to allow these guys to each bring their own essence to the role and not try to bring this other thing from the previous story uh, with them. And part of that is the restraint and the subtlety. Like, the, you know, the scene on the beach, you know, you need to have a scene of young love, so to speak. And you do it in a very tasteful manner, yet we're aware of what's happened. You know, at the end of the movie, you have the, the emotional connection with these two guys. And again, you're showing restraint. How much of that was you saying, listen, I don't want to have... Uh, graphic sexuality, I want to focus on the characters, or was it, again, a, a budgetary issue or some other reason that you filmed it the way you did? No, that was intentional. I think it's just the, the, my approach to, to those that, that kind of subject matter, those kind of things uh, in cinema. You know, my previous film, Medicine for Melancholy, is about, you know, a, a guy and a girl, you know, a very classic sort of love story or love pairing. And I think we still treat those moments of intimacy the same way. You know, I, I'm glad you mentioned that scene on the beach because, from a production standpoint, that is as large as as we ever are in the film. You know, there were no lights um, on the shore that night. That these turtles uh, come in to mate, and they force all the buildings along the boardwalk to turn their lights on, so the turtles will go back out into the ocean. <laughs> we we were not aware of that until about two weeks before. So the most lighting, the most crew, the most rigging we have is on that night of that beach scene, and yes, the most intimate moment uh, in the film. And so those things were absolutely intentional and we try to give Ashton Sanders and Jarrell Jerome the space, you know, to, to take to, to be patient, you know, and take those quiet moments. That's really well said. We're talking with Barry Jenkins of Moonlight, not only nominated for best director, but also best adapted screenplay. 
The script, like you said, is a, is a series of quiet observances which lead to this kind of emotional wallop. How'd you come up with the title, Barry? I have not read. Why did you come up with Moonlight? Because I think there's Moonlight Mile. Like there's other movies with that, but yet it really fits the movie, and yet I can't, you know, articulate why. Why did you like it? Yeah, you know, the, the source material written by Terrell Alvin McCraney, who is a MacArthur genius and now the head of the playwriting program at the Yale School of Drama. Uh, he's very good with words, man. And uh, his piece was titled "In Moonlight, Black Boys Look Blue." Um, and I just thought that was a bit much to have on the poster. <laughs> and so, uh, but, but, you know, he had written all these sequences that, to me, uh, took place underneath that moonlight, to quote Frank Ocean. And, um, and, and it just felt like there was something about it, that it was a safe space, you know, with this character who was always trying to either hide something or, or trying to, to, to retreat, you know, retract from the world. You know, in, in these sequences underneath the moonlight, you know, he, he could allow himself to, to truly be. And so I just I just have faith that you know I wouldn't you know, that we could put moonlight on the title and someone could watch the film and they could get that feeling you know that that sort of like evocative uh, emotion that I felt in reading Twelve's piece for the first time. Yeah, that's very cool. That definitely adds some added resonance to it. On a personal note, Barry, you, you certainly overcame a lot of adversity in your own life. Your dad died when you were twelve. Uh, he had earlier separated from your mom, believing that you know you were not her biological son. You were raised by another woman in an overcrowded apartment. So this is. Clearly, circumstances which could be challenging, you know, later made your way to Florida State University where you studied film. But those early experiences, how do you think those have shaped you as a filmmaker, particularly? You know, I think I grew up uh, as a kid in those environments. You know, I I was often watching, you know, I I was an observer. I was always, you know, watching how people operated, you know, how they interacted, you know, often because I was probably too afraid to participate, you know. But, you know, I I think I I made myself an audience uh, to my own life. And I think it's why, especially in Moonlight, there are certain things we do uh, with the camera that are absolutely taking uh, stock, that are actively aware of the audience as a participant watching uh, these lives unfold. And so I I do think in a very subtle way, because I wasn't aware I wanted to be a filmmaker, uh, the way I grew up absolutely uh, has an impact on on the way I approach the medium. Um, And and even more than that, one of the first lessons I was taught in film school was, you know, I, I may not know how to hold a camera the same way some of these kids who grew up with camcorders do. Um, but I have a voice because I've lived through some things. And, you know, and I always try to be aware, you know, of, of how my experience is, is influencing my work. Now, there's definitely a lot of empathy in this film, and I can only imagine because you've lived through, you know, challenging circumstances, you're able to kind of transmit that to those characters. Of course, Cinephile, this podcast is all movies, but you know my day job as a sportscaster for ESPN. Uh, what was your reaction as, as you DM me? First of all, thank you for the follow, which led to this conversation. Secondly, what was your reaction when you see your name and Sports Center and Florida State in the same conversation? Bruh, it was crazy, man. Cause see, I, I, I played high school in Miami. Uh, I went to a very good high school, Miami Northwestern. You know, there were three running backs on my high school football team, two made it to the NFL, one is talking to you. So I've always had the dream of being on SportsCenter, man. And actually, I'll, I'll be honest, my agent was the one who sent it to me. My agent at CAA, he saw it, and he recorded it on his iPhone and sent it to me. And, man, it made my day. We're the Golden Globes cool being on SportsCenter. Uh, just a little bit cooler, bro. <laughs> it's so funny, man, because I find whenever we talk to people like yourself, other actors, writers, Either they're really into sports or they're not. Meaning, when Billy Bob Thornton's here, I just want to talk about Sling Blade, and he just wants to talk about the St. Louis Cardinals and Arkansas, et cetera. And then there's other actors who go, oh, no, no, please, I, I, I know nothing about sports. And I'm like, hey, it's all good either way. So I'm happy that you're, uh, you're appreciative of what we're doing as well. No, no doubt, man, no doubt. 
Uh, Barry Jenkins is nominated for not only Best Director, but also Best Adapted Screenplay. Moonlight is going to be in contention for eight Academy Awards at the Oscars. I'm going to be there for Oscar.com. Me and Ben Lyons are going to be doing some second screen stuff. We're hosting the Oscars All Access show. So I can't wait to see you at the red carpet. And congrats on the film, Barry. Way to go, man. Thanks, man. Much appreciated. By the way, I'm going to tell Kenny Lonigan you said what's up. I know you're a fan, man. Oh, Manchester by the Sea, phenomenal. Pass along his info. We'd love to get him on here, too. Both of you guys had great films this year. Will do, bro. Will do. It is the director's edition of Cinephile, and joined now by Garth Davis, the director of Line, who was nominated for a DGA, the Director's Guild Award, and his film, of course, is nominated for Best Picture. Garth, congratulations, and welcome to Cinephile. Oh, thank you so much. I thought the first hour was particularly extraordinary because it was very risky filmmaking, I think, Garth, because, again, people understand the star system. They understand the major names. They know Dev Patel. They know Nicole Kidman. And I thought it took a lot of courage on your part to say, listen, we'll get to that section, but we're not going to shortchange what this five-year-old boy is going through and what this journey is going on this train and running away from, from all these attackers. Did you have anybody saying, hey, listen, make sure, maybe get a flashback in there early, make sure you show Nicole Kidman, she's a star, within the first 10 minutes? Or was there no pushback? And they said, no, go yeah. ahead, first hour, just show the kid. <laughs> Look, there was a lot of conversations about about that. But the one thing that you know you, you couldn't deny was that whenever you spoke about this story, you never spoke about it in terms of, oh, this is a modern guy who starts to remember the past. You always tell the story starting with the little boy. You say it's about the story of a little boy who gets trapped on a train. He ends up in Calcutta, and everyone's going, wow, that's interesting. And then he gets adopted to an Australian family. And it, it was always the best way to tell the story. And every way we looked at it, we felt that the linear method was going to be the most powerful experience for the audience, but also the best way to empathize with Saru and, and the overall story. I mean, of course, that made everyone nervous. Um, but when you have a sensible conversation with everyone involved, it became very clear that, that was the most powerful way to do it. So, I don't know, we just got lucky, I suppose, to be supported, but um, the story was just so powerful. People connected with it. That little boy is marvelous in that movie, Garth. I, I, what was it like directing him? Was it? I, I can't imagine dealing with child actors and then just the physicality. I mean, there's so many shots of him running away from people and dealing mm. with urgency. What was it like directing him? Oh, look, it was probably the most uh, complicated thing I've ever done in my life was preparing and shooting uh, a five-and-a-half-year-old child for that kind of level of drama. I mean, it's not stealing moments. Like this child, as you say, is doing very complicated um, scenes. You know, he's got three, you know, he may have three or four physical staging elements in a take with emotion as well. So it was he was doing some very complicated acting. Look, it was, um, we did a lot of preparation. I surrounded myself and very talented people to help prepare him as well because as a director, you can't be with him all the time. You've, you've got to go and place the camera and you kind of get caught up in other things. So I needed to make sure that he was constantly supported and uh, we just put a lot of time into it. And um, I also developed a very strong relationship with him. Uh, we, obviously, he didn't speak English, which was a challenge. But there was a point where we had this unspoken language and a lot of sign language and he, he, he really developed into a fine actor. Hang on a second. He did not speak English. Did you have somebody on set? Was it was it Hindi or some other language he was speaking, a translator? Or you were just going non-verbal? Yeah, no, I had a translator. Okay. Um, but it it's interesting. You know, all directors have a unique language in how they communicate to an actor. 
So it's very frustrating when you can't just have that dialogue uh, with with your actor. Um, so going through a translator is a very frustrating process. But I was able to express myself through sign language with him, um, my emotional connection to him. That's amazing. I, I also, to further the point about him in that first hour, I'm of South Asian descent. My family's from Pakistan originally. And I'm sure people that don't know South Asia would just think, okay, he goes in this train, it's a different part of India. Like, how hard is this? Just figure out where he is. But people don't understand, Garth, how many dialects, how many languages are spoken in India. It may be one yes. country, but you might as well be in a different universe. And I thought the movie really captured that aspect that if you're a five-and-a-half-year-old kid, all he knows is mama. He doesn't know Bengali, Hindi, all these different languages, the, the Ganges River. He doesn't know what he's up against, right? Well, no, I mean, children of that time, they never really left their village, you know, so that that fateful night he goes out with his brother was the first time he'd been that far out of his village. And, yeah, he's not, he hasn't even seen a city of this scale yet. And, yes, there's so many different dialects. And, um, I mean, that's largely why the movie is a silent movie for the first third because um, he was the invisible boy. You know, nobody connected with him. He couldn't communicate. And um, it was a very palpable um, sensation watching the film and, very frustrating to see him not being seen. You know, it was, um, yeah, very, very harrowing. We're talking with Garth Davis, the director of the film Line, which is nominated for Best Picture, along with five other Oscar nominations at the upcoming Academy Awards. So then we get to the second section of the film. It's about finding your way home. It's about adoption and, and balancing your new parents are trying to find your home. What was it like working with, with Dave Patel and Nicole Kidman? Look, it was extraordinary. Um, I met Dave Patel at a point in his life and his career where he wanted to do something deeper, more substantial, um, kind of real, and um, and that's what this character needed. Um, so I think we, we met at this really amazing time, and he worked so hard, mate. He, like six to eight months of physical preparation, accent. I gave him a lot of um, assignments to prepare for the role. So, I mean, I've never worked with such a committed actor, um, and, he, and he really flourished in this film. Um, Nicole Kidman... Uh, also had a deep passion and connection to this story. Obviously, you know, adopting children herself, um, and there were so many similarities between her and Sue that, you know, I could just tell that this was a film she really wanted to do. And um, both of these actors, I think, did some of their best work. Yeah, you were able to extract excellent performances out of them. And on a personal note, I mean, listen, you've received BAFTA Emmy nominations for the series top of the lake before but this is your feature film directorial debut and already you're up for best patron as i mentioned the dga nomination and you had to work with harvey weinstein we've we've heard all the stories Garth. we know he can be uh brilliant and also belligerent just ask martin scorsese about gangs in new york how that was like being made what was it like working for harvey weinstein yeah. well i think my experience was great because i made a good film <laughs> <laughs> look you know i think i think at the end of the day Harvey wants movies that speak to audiences. So I totally understand a frustration that he may have with a film or a director that's going very singular or thinking about their own needs rather than the audiences. So, you know, this is a film and a story that deserved to be seen by people and be enjoyed by people. So I think he was um, deeply relieved when he watched it because it was incredibly engaging and moving. And, um, and he's a great lover of cinema as well. So... I remember when he supported us in making this movie early on, he, he did write a letter mentioning that it reminded him of The Bicycle Thief and all of that beautiful Italian cinema, and that's exactly where my heart was at. It was about these characters that were very alive 
and you know just that feeling of going to the cinema and being totally immersed in a story and being moved by a story. So I think Harvey has a passion for this film, and um, you know he a Herculean effort has gone into promoting and pushing this film. Oh, he's definitely brilliant in terms of promoting his films, and you're right. Everyone says at heart he's not just a businessman; he really is a cinema lover. And for those who haven't seen Vittorio De Sica's The Bicycle Thief, it is a classic, of course, of Italian cinema, as Gar said. And you're right; there's definitely parallels to Line in terms of a little boy and trying to overcome. You know, it's deceptively simple. It's actually you know much more far-reaching and life-affirming yep. than you think. Um, DGA nomination: you edged out Martin Scorsese for Silence, Mel Gibson for Hacksaw Ridge. I mean, major names. And you got to be a part of the Directors Guild. What does that mean to be recognized by your peers like that? Oh, look, I was not expecting it, you know. Um, I just, I was really moved by that. I mean, <laughs> clearly all the directors of the Guild could see the challenges I had to face <laughs> making this movie. So I'm so happy that they acknowledged and saw from a d- directing point of view what, what went into this movie. So, I mean, it was wonderful, mate. I mean, it's a very surreal experience. And the journey's been amazing. I'm sure that first touchstone was when it premiered at the Toronto Film Festival, rave reviews. Was there just an overwhelming sense of relief once the film was screened in Toronto and you saw how much audiences loved it? Oh, uh, yeah, we had the standing ovation that just didn't stop. And, um, and you know, nearly 80% of the audience were just deeply emotional. And, and after pretty much after every screening that I've been to, you'll get at least 30 people coming up holding onto your arm, sharing their story with you, whether they're a refugee themselves or someone that's adopted or someone that has a, something unresolved in their life. or It just touches people and so many different people. Um, so it was a huge relief to finally give birth to this film and see the audiences just own it. So I was just so relieved. Well, I think for a lot of us it's the birth of a new filmmaking talent in you, Garth. An Aussie who has made a wonderful film, so it's definitely universal. And by the way, if I'm to believe these notes, you're six two, which means you must be gigantic in Hollywood, right? <laughs> yeah, I am. I'm a bit over six two. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Garth Davis, the director of Line, go check out his film, nominated for six Academy Awards. Congratulations on making a wonderful film, Garth, and uh, best of luck the rest of the way. Thanks for your support. Thank you so much. Actor Showcase. Dan has created the Cinephile Twitter now. It's at Cinephile ESPN, C-I-N-E-P-H-I-L-E, in case you're not following. So he'll tweet out stuff that that we've said in the podcast. And uh, on Sunday, he tweeted out the Will Smith Top 5 movie roles. A lot of blowback here. Stanford Steve, Rosillo thinks Ali was terrible. I got accosted this morning from a fellow Mike and Mike producer. He was like, you said Will Smith's Top 5 roles. Why isn't the Fresh Prince in there? Like, that's got to be in there, right? Like, why didn't you change it? I go, it's a movie podcast. It doesn't have to be in there. <laughs> it's not called Mr. TV Show. No, but a lot of pushback. And I, you know, I figured he was appropriate because right. it was the day of the Grammys, and Will Smith has won four Grammys. Right. Easy tie-in. Right. And some people see that, and they're like, was that you? Is this your opinion? Where did this ranking come from? I'm like, we did this months ago. It's, right. You know, it's not a new thing. It all it all comes from you. It's all that's, It was your ranking. So I don't right. know. A lot of blowback. People just love the legend of Bagger Vance. Thanks to Mike Ryan, who's one of the producers of the phenomenal Dan Levitard show, which is so funny. I don't know why Mike did this. I, 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 do you know the reason behind this? He just forced himself to watch Nicholas. No, Cage it was movies. a part of their their grid of death, their punishments oh, for having okay. the wrong football teams picked oh, okay. out of uh, the bucket of death. Bucket of death. <laughs> and so his team lost, and then he had to pick up punishment, and one of them was in the cage, 12 hours in the cage. 
All Nicholas Cage. Movies. Amazingly, he did it because like Mike was sending up pictures of himself. Like he's drinking red wine. He's trying to like, fight his way through uh, snake eyes, which is deplorable. So uh, motivated by Mike, I put together my top five Nicholas Cage movies. Number five is Kiss of Death. Plays a supporting role as a guy who's just jacked up, one badass gangster. Uh, it's him, David Caruso. Remember when David Caruso left NYPD Blue, go be a movie actor? The first movie he did was Kiss of Death, which was not well received at the box office. Critics thought it was all right. I thought it was a good movie. And Cage is great. And he steals every scene uh, playing this hulking menace. Number four is Face Off. Those that criticize me for my highbrow taste, listen, I love a good action movie as much as anybody. John Woo's Face Off is a great action movie. Yes, it's silly. Yes, it's ridiculous. Yes, the fact they're switching faces is about as implausible as any story ever. But listen, they've got action sequences on planes, boats, cars, and then eventually there's just two guys beating each other up on the beach. And Cage is great at it. I'm Caster Troy. Number three is Bringing Out the Dead. We'll do that on next uh, Cinephile Scorsese story, a movie which I watched again. Cage plays a, a haunted, burnt-out paramedic uh, teaming up with Marty. And Paul Schrader wrote the script. And Cage, this was the time we started to kind of get a little, you know, a little slippery. This was 1999. But as far as playing a guy who's just haunted by death and burnt out, Cage, I thought, nailed that role and brought it uh, to life. Number two, Adaptation. Tim Kirchner once told me, Jason Stark recommended it to me. So you got to see this movie, Adaptation. It was Tim, his wife, a bunch of people. They watched it. Thought it was the weirdest, most screwed up movie ever. They're like, what? And Stark's like, how great was it? He goes, no, I don't. I, I didn't get it. <laughs> so that's not what I would recommend to like the dinner party for just average fans. But I think if you have certain tastes, I think you'll find Adaptation brilliant. I loved it. Uh, Charlie Kaufman's story. Charlie Kaufman trying to adapt the story. He couldn't do it. So he made a movie about a screenwriter trying to adapt the story about orchids. And he, he says, this is so ridiculous. And Nick Cage plays two roles, plays twin brothers, and he's phenomenal in it. Like, it's, it was a revelation how good Nicolas Cage was in the movie, not only as the frustrated, self-loathing screenwriter, but the scenes where he's writing, he's like, he's like, oh, I'm fat, I'm lonely, I'm miserable, I should go for a run, I don't want to go for a run, I'm tired, i got to write something, I'll just have a bagel instead. Like, there's one scene, he's so frenzied, he goes, we open on Charlie Kaufman, fat, ugly, balding, like, he's just, I mean, the, the brother is like this happy-go-lucky, sweet guy, he got the girls, he's laughing, like, Cage has never been better. Adaptation is such a fun, gonzo movie. I just, the inspiration behind that movie and that Charlie Kaufman script, so great. And number one is Leaving Las Vegas. Of course, he won an Oscar for that performance. He and Elizabeth Shue took two characters, which are absolute cliches. One is a drunk, one is a hooker with a heart of gold, and yet both took those cliched-type roles and turned them inside out. And he's amazing because what he shows is that the alcoholic is never better than when he's drunk. So although it's very simple to think you're drinking yourself to death, you can't do this, he realizes that life is never better when he's just completely smashed, even if the downfall is irrevocable and horrific and he's on this landslide of destruction he's going to kill himself he's like no that's my goal that's what i'm going to do and i'm going to live life to the fullest until then and mike figus in the story is very smart does not show what was the tragic event that leads him on this downfall there, there's no idea just you know that he was married and something happened with his wife and now it's i'm going to las vegas i'm going to drink myself to death and that's it dark harrowing unsparing really one of the height you know when billy bob thornton was here he was talking about indie movies of the 90s how there was that great craze of them uh and sling blade certainly from billy bob was one of them leaving las vegas is one of those two i think years from now people go all right let's sum up the 90s the indie movies they'll go oh leaving las vegas was a real symbol and emblem of those kinds of movies i can't believe i'm saying this especially when we're doing nick cage but four notable omissions <laughs> uh moonstruck who love who doesn't love share pretty good moonstruck is good Gone in 60 Seconds. 
Steve Levy tweeted me that yesterday. He goes, where do we stand on Gone 60 Seconds asking for a friend? I saw it the one time. It's pretty good. I, I guess, yeah, if you like action movies, I would include it. It's not going to include my five, but sure. Con Air? Con Air is all right. I mean, listen, again, fun action movie. I love Malkovich, Cyrus the Virus, and it's it's tongue-in-cheek. I remember the trailer. Like, they're zooming in on the slow motion. He's... Gives that wink. I mean, it's it's goofy fun. Again, if we're doing just action movies, then yeah, Nick Cage's Connor be in there, but not making my five. And the one that bothered me the most, The Rock. The Rock is a great action movie. Probably should be number five. I should probably move off Kiss of Death. All right, Kiss of Death out. The Rock is in. Amendment, because you're right. The Rock, it's, that's a pretty kick-ass. You know what that is? That's just my dislike of Michael Bay. Ben Lyons were joking. We were joking about... You know, what would be, you know, the, all these Hollywood liberals are going so anti-president. You, go, you know what's going to happen? Jerry Bruckheimer and Michael Bay, they're going to make a Donald Trump movie. And it's going to be like The Rock. It'll be like an action movie. And I'm like, that will just anger all of these Hollywood liberals. But middle America will love it. Like, it'll do bang-up business in Nebraska and Iowa. They're like, yeah, Trump as The Rock. Take that. <laughs> There's our top five. To recap, Leaving Las Vegas, Adaptation, Bringing Out the Dead, Face Off, and thanks to Dan correcting me. Kiss of Death's pretty good, though. You should check it out. It's kind of a fun movie. But The Rock is number five. A Scorsese story. So I rewatched Bringing Out the Dead. I'll discuss that in full on the next edition of Cinephile, which will be our Oscars recap. But Alec Baldwin generating a lot of pub for good reason. Because uh, SNL just hosted for his uh, record 17th time. And, of course, all the Donald Trump stuff. He's so good at that. I heard uh, Dan's old buddy Colin Cowherd talking the other day that he thinks Jamie Foxx, the most talented guy in Hollywood. Jamie Foxx pretty good. But I, Alec Baldwin, to me, in terms of talent, that guy can do everything. He's won. He's never won an Oscar. He was nominated for an Oscar um, for a movie called The Cooler, which he played a, a heavy. Roger Ebert really liked that movie because he said he, he played the, a bad guy, you know, with a, with a heart of gold kind of thing. A bruising, brawling casino manager. William H. Macy was in the movie. Not many people saw it. Baldwin was nominated. He's never won. There was that push where it felt like Baldwin was like yearning for an Oscar. He made Ghost of Mississippi, which is a really corny. Again, if I didn't like Hidden Figures, Ghost of Mississippi, very sanitized look at race relations. James Woods was actually good playing the, the redneck evil guy, the racist. But yeah, there was that stretch where I was like, oh, I felt like Alec was really pining for an Oscar. They said, oh, the hell, I'll do TV. And he was incredible in 30 Rock. So he's won Emmys. He's won Golden Globes. He's never won an Oscar. But I think he can sing. He can dance. He's funny. Comedy, drama. Like Alec Baldwin's the best. On that note, he also does a podcast. Here's the thing which you should check out. I think it's hit and miss. Again, I don't share all of his passions, and sometimes he goes a little bit away from what I'm interested in. But immediately I was flagged by Mark Simon and a few of my other friends. Who go, hey, you're going to like this one. And it's simply entitled Martin Scorsese's Secret Weapon. And it's uh, with his editor, Thelma Schoonmaker, who Marty has worked with since 1980, since Raging Bull. Fascinating 40-minute podcast. Thelma Schoonmaker um, you know, grew up overseas, wanted to be a diplomat was taking an editing course, because that was the best question. Alex said, how'd you meet Marty? Like, how'd you become, you know, his, his right-hand lady? And um, she was in an editing course, and they asked him, and they go, hey, somebody screwed up the negative on Martin Scorsese's film. Can somebody help him out? And so it was, she explains what that means with, with the negative, splitting the negative. And basically, it was just this editing term, and she goes, I can try. I'll give it a shot. And Marty was just so grateful. She goes, he'd been trying for two days to fix it himself. She goes, when I first met him, because everybody has this image of Scorsese, all that energy. But I saw him like after he had he'd been up for two days straight. He looked like a ghost. I said, oh, my God, this is the guy. I'll, I'll see what I can do to help your movie. She said, but right from the get-go, I'm like, yeah, this guy is so obsessed. He's so passionate about films and about his film. And when I fixed it, it was just like synchronicity. We were ready to go. And ever since Raging Bull, she's, made, she's won three Oscars. She's been nominated seven times. She's done every Scorsese movie since 1980. So it's an amazing kinship. And, and she tells some great stories 
Uh, Baldwin just asked her, what's it like with him in the studio? And she said, well, it's funny. She goes, I've, I've definitely seen the side of Marty where he gets so upset. And he goes, you know, I'll burn the film before I'll do that. Like, literally, he storms out of the room because that's it. Forget it. She goes, but he's become smarter over time and more diplomatic. She goes, recently, he was in a meeting with some studio executives, and they were trying to convince him to change some of the casting of one of his movies. It's probably Silence. And she goes, Marty just started telling the story about these gangsters like he grew up with, like – you know, in Goodfellas, the, the opening shot where you see the kid looking out the window, like that was Marty. Like he would look out his window. He had very bad asthma. He didn't go outside much, but he'd see all the gangsters like on the street, what they were doing. And in fact, he, he would tell Thelma, he's like, oh, yeah, like the, the gangsters, like they, <laughs> they would come around, like tell our parents, tell people in the buildings, like, hey, at three o'clock, make sure your kids are off the street. Like something's going to go down here. Like it's very much that Godfather style of like, honorable killings. No women and children, but some stuff's going to go down. So you don't want to be here. And Marty was explaining to the studio executives what that was like, like just knowing that, yeah, someone's about to get murdered, so just don't walk on the street at 4 o'clock at this time. And she goes, but he was going into such detail about it. She goes, the room was so cold. Everybody was starving. A couple of his agents were texting back. We're like, what's Marty doing? And I'm like, he's just wearing down the executives. So she goes, he's become a lot smarter over time that he just talks and talks. And eventually they were like, all right, fine. Whatever you say, Marty, let's, let's just break for lunch. She goes, but he really is a survivor, the way he, he is able to make his movies in this world. Alec Baldwin asked her what's, what's her favorite of all his movies that she's edited. Because she goes, listen, I didn't do Taxi Driver. That was Marsha Lucas, George Lucas's wife at the time, and Mean Streets, et cetera. So Raging Bull on. And Baldwin said, I love Goodfellas. He goes, particularly because, you know, I, I love it. Because speaking of editing, the editing of the scene, the way De Niro tells Lorraine Bracco to go get a dress. He goes, it's so ominous, the way he just goes, you know, just go right down. It's, it, it, it kind of gives that face and the look, the jarring look on her face. She's got, there's this one shot where it just looks dark and a couple of guys look and she goes, oh, my God, Jimmy's about to kill me. Like, I got to get out of here. He's like, no, no, no. Then it goes to a high shot. And Jimmy, no. He's like, oh, God. Go in there. Go in there. And goes, I just love the editing of that sequence. Uh, but Thelma said Raging Bull. She said, I, I have to show it once in a while. And I went back and watched it again. And she goes, I just think the music, the performances, the acting, the style of it. And she goes, because Baldwin goes, how do you do the violence? And she goes, well, of course, like no one's getting hit. Like De Niro couldn't get hit with a boxing glove that many times. It was always there was no hand in the glove, so we'd have to just shoot an empty glove hitting Bob, and then the squirting and the blood. Because that's all in the editing. So the way that you know Marty shoots it so well that when I'm there with him, he's explaining, okay, go this, go this, go this. Like it's it's amazing the dedication, the meticulousness he puts in that. And she goes, the Raging Bull scenes in particular. I remember just being astounded by like the level of detail he had in here. And she said, as far as acting with the editors, she goes. Um, the easiest ones to edit of all the movies that Marty's done, the two actors are Kate Blanchett, who was in The Aviator, won an Oscar for it, playing Catherine Hepburn, and Daniel Day-Lewis. Because she goes, both of those two actors, they are so well-prepared and they're so into their character. When they show up on set and Marty says action, it's inevitably the first take that we use. She goes, when I'm in the editing room, Marty will give me a list. He'll go, yeah, first take, first take, Daniel. Like, yeah. Like Bill the Butch, like he's knocking out of the park. She said, whereas De Niro and Leo – both love to improvise, and they like to work their way towards the performance. So she said, if we do a scene on average 10 times, the take that Leo and Bob will like and that Marty will generally like is like take six or seven, which I found fascinating. I, I don't like doing anything twice, much less three times, much less five times. And for Leo and Bob to be like, no, no, I prefer it that way. Like I'm, I'm kind of just getting into this thing. I'm, I'm easing into the delivery. I find that amazing. It's why I find actors so, so incredible. So make sure you check out, here's the thing, Alec Baldwin's podcast with Thelma Schoonmaker, the longtime editor of Martin Scorsese. The next time I talk to all of you, I will have walked the red carpet. Somebody will have said to me, who are you wearing? For those stories and many others, I'll see you at the movies. We'll see you next time on Cinephile. Don't miss out on the next episode of Cinephile. Subscribe to the Adnan Verk Movie Podcast by clicking the Listen tab in the ESPN app.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.